0: So, so here's, here's what we've been kind of working up to, right? Like we're trying to understand how can I appropriately digest parts of the Bible that seem a little difficult and specifically we're focusing on end time stuff, but this is, this is the trick of the class, right? The trick of the class is that like I care about end time stuff, but really what I care about is that we understand how to read the Bible in a safe way, but in a productive way. And the end times is kind of, I dangle the carrot at you. The truth, though is, is that a lot of times it's the end time stuff that jacks us up. It's where we, we read something and we lose we, you like lose your mind. And so we need to reorient ourselves and figure out how do I actually appropriately digest the stuff in front of us. If you remember last week, some of the stuff that we covered, we talked about understanding God's Word in the context of his, the rest of his story. One of the problems that we have with understanding what we read is that we do not know our Old Testament. And the scripture, that the New Testament writers are coming from or referring to is the Old Testament. Okay? When they make references to those things and we miss them, we lose some of the context of it. Okay? So we have to be real careful. We talked about in John 8 when, um, when, when Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. He uses that, that I am phrase, me," which is the same distinction that God makes of himself to Moses when he says, I am who I am. And when, so, when the Pharisees are trying to stone him, that makes a lot of sense. Otherwise, it looks like they significantly overreacted. But in the context of God's whole story, we understand what Jesus has claimed. And then the Pharisees' reaction, although wrong, certainly starts to make more sense. Um, we also talked about, and this is going to show up today, we talked about the phrase, son of man. Where was that from? Anybody remember? Like, what, what's our prime reference for son of man? Daniel 7. Now, there are Son of Man references in both Ezekiel and Isaiah, but those tend to refer to, I am God, you are Son of Man. It's a distinction of, of who you're dealing with. Okay? Daniel 7's Son of Man, however, describes one like a Son of Man that is coming on the clouds to get dominion and kingdom. Okay? It's, it's the coming of a king, the establishment of a kingdom. And one of our distinctions that we needed to make was... The Son of Man was coming, but where was He coming from and where is He going to? Coming from earth, going to the Ancient of Days, or heaven. One of the problems that we have when we see Son of Man language is we see Son of Man coming and we are oriented to ourselves and we say, He must be coming to me. That's how the Son of Man comes. But Daniel 7 doesn't orient that way. He says the Son of Man comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days. So He's coming from earth to heaven. So we have to be very careful when we read in the Bible that Son of Man language is used because we love Son of Man to mean second coming or End of the world. But that's not the context of which Son of Man is used. We talked through Matthew 10. One of the things He said, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And we decided that that had to be, if we are going to orient it in the time of, that makes sense for Jesus to have not made a false prediction. If the Son of Man comes during the establishment of the kingdom, and the kingdom of God is establishing, because the New Testament reveals the kingdom as points of establishment, and we're going to run into that in Matthew 24 as well, it is not established at one time, it is establishing, and we see the parables in Matthew 13 that show that. Then we say that you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before this process of the kingdom establishing is going on, which means you have not failed, it just means there is more work to be done. The work isn't over. You're not going to finish going through the cities of Israel before this Son of Man event has started to take place, and you need to keep going, and then it will continue to expand, which makes a lot more sense in the context of what we live in today. right? If they they had failed, or if it was to stop, I don't know what we're doing here. And if Jesus said it would happen and it hasn't and uh, they haven't finished going through the cities of Israel and it should have been done, then Jesus failed and he gave a false prediction. All right? But if we orient it on Son of Man, Daniel 7 style, which is the only reference in the Old Testament where we have the phrase Son of Man coming uh, accompanied with each other, then it actually makes a ton of sense. He was going to establish it and they still have more work to do. That's work that we carry on today. Everybody good still there? That all still makes sense from last week. Okay. So, I wanted to reiterate that because, I'll be honest with you, uh, Matthew 24 is difficult. One of the things I'm going to do, um, we're gonna, I'm going to read through it, and here's what I want you to do, and I want you to be honest with me here, okay? and I will participate. You'll see my hand go up as well. As I start to read through Matthew 24, I want you to throw a hand up when you think, definitely second coming. We've moved into second coming territory. Okay? So we can get an idea. I think there's a lot of options in here. (laughs) I don't know that I should get too many sentences before we start seeing hands, Um, but let's read through it and then we'll start to to try to tackle it and I promise you it's gonna require all the stuff that we've kind of learned up to this point to parse through it. Um, I will warn you in advance though, there's a lot to hold together. So if you're feeling lost, just be patient with me. We'll resolve it probably before the end of today, definitely before the end of next week, okay? All right, Matthew 24, the goal is when we think we've moved into second coming territory because it is here, I want you to throw a hand up. Jesus left the temple and was going away, but when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not had been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand, so if they say to you, Look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, Look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. All right, we'll stop there. We'll see if we can make it past that this week. But like, I saw at least three spots where I'm like, yo, yeah, yeah, that could be Jesus coming. Definitely. Okay? Um, so reading this in a way that says, boy, that's got to be the end of the world. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. But let's parse through it. Let's go into the context that we have here. Let's see how we can kind of digest each of these things um, to see if we can figure out what's going on. First thing I want to do, I want to give you a quick history up to the destruction of the temple. i um, remember the date of the destruction of the temple? 70 AD. Yeah, 70 A.D. There is a time of... Um, basically tribulation for the Jewish uh, people between uh, the Jews in Rome between 66 and 70 AD, okay? And I want to give you kind of a brief history of the Jews in Rome. And this is certainly brief, but I'll help you give you the context of how they're kind of digesting some of this stuff. The Rome uh, Roman had had first occupied Israel in 63 BC. Um, this was largely ruled by procurators, people who were ruling on Rome's behalf, people like Pontius Pilate, Okay. Um, and they collected, just like uh, we talk about Matthew and how he's, he's rich or he's wealthy because he collects taxes and he collects more than is due. Um, and then that's how he maintains wealth. And as a Jew, that's weird. That puts him in a weird spot, right? He has no home. He's, he's not a friend of the Romans. He's simply doing work on their behalf. And he's not a friend of the Jews because he's collecting more taxes than they have to pay and getting rich off it. He's a man without a home. The Roman procurators basically work the same way. They also took more taxes than were they owed tax to Rome as the procurator but they collected more than was due and that's how they became rich the richer they were the more they were shaking down the people that they were over to maintain their wealth okay that's how the procurators worked um Rome took over so obviously the Jews aren't very happy with the Roman oversight of their uh, of their lives uh Rome also took over the appointment of the high priest uh which means that those who represented the Jews before God came from the ranks of the Jews that collaborated with Rome Okay? This would have been the Sadducees. The Sadducees were allowed to run the temple because basically, politically, they were, they were willing to be in cahoots with Rome to a certain extent. Okay? Um, they were theologically very strict. Um, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible. Nothing past that and also none of the, um, the oral law or the oral traditions between Moses and God. Um, they didn't believe in that stuff. That's why there's, a, there's an interaction between the Sadducees and Jesus. And they ask him a question about uh, the resurrection, which they do not believe in. And Jesus gives them like a real funky answer, and I think he's basically mocking them. It's, it's one where he says, uh, you will not have marriage or be given in marriage. Um, and, uh, and actually, I think Jesus is kind of playing with them a little bit because they asked him on purpose a question they didn't believe in. Okay? So this would have been the Sadducees' realm, but it means that Rome is picking someone who basically will work with them, where the Pharisees would not. The Pharisees were a constant thorn on the side of Rome, and they would not participate in these things that Rome was doing. At the turn of the century, um, there's, a, there's a group of Jews called the, the Zealots. The Jewish Zealots emerged. Um, they were anti-Roman rebels. They were active for over 60 years. And they, they're the ones that basically instigated this, 66 to 70 AD, which is the Great Revolt. Um, and that's what eventually leads to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. They believed that all means were justified to attain political and religious liberty. Okay? I mean, we use the, the term zealot a lot in that way today, right? A guy who's, who's willing to do just about anything to attain his cause. That's these guys. Um, Anti-Roman uh, feelings were made worse during the reign of Caligula. Caligula declares himself a god in AD 39. Now, most of the time, the way the, the, the emperors work is they would, they would be deified after they died. Because it's very pompous to claim yourself a god as you live. Um, and so most of them will be kind of claimed to God after they die. Caligula, on the other hand, says, I don't have any reason to wait for this. So 39 AD, he claims himself as God and orders that a statue of him be set up in, in every synagogue and every temple. Of all the groups in the Roman Empire, and they're big, there's a lot of people in the Roman Empire, only the Jews protest. And they say, we're not, uh, we're not gonna do that. He says, uh, you'll do it or I'll destroy the temple. And they send this group of guys to try to reason with him. It backfires, and he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to create a, another uh, statue of half bee, half-Zeus, and it's going in your temple. This is big, because this was 39 AD, and Josephus says... Uh, Josephus was a, uh, was a Jew who, who basically was a Benedict Arnold. He went over to the Roman side, but he provides some of the more robust history of that time, both from a Roman perspective and from a Jewish perspective. He says that if this would have happened in 39 AD, the temple would have been destroyed then. The Jews simply would not tolerate having the temple defaced like that. In fact, you couldn't even bring images into the city. There was a story between the, the Pharisees and, the, and uh, Pilate where um, he wanted to bring in um, this, this Roman image into the city of Jerusalem, and uh, they protested, and they said, no, you're not going to do this. And he said, oh, yes, I am. And he said, well, let's talk about this, because there was rising animosity. All these, uh, all these priests show up and uh, inside uh, Herod's area, and his army surrounds him and said, I'm going to kill you unless you agree to let this, uh, let this image stay in the city. And they all knelt down on their knees, and they revealed their necks and said, you go ahead and do it. And he backed off. So one time, the one time the Pharisees decide not to try to fight their war with violence, and they were successful. Uh, every other time, they're going to try to provoke this thing physically, and it gets them into trouble. But this is a big deal. This is a big deal. And so Caligula, he is mysteriously assassinated. The general who was supposed to be delivering the statue had put it off for like a year and a half, and so he call, he cancels this thing as soon as Caligula is assassinated, um, and then uh, it doesn't it doesn't happen. Uh, Claudius comes to reign, and then it doesn't uh, it doesn't follow. During the years between, like, 39 and 66, um, there were various offenses against the Jews. And this is by no means exhaustive. But, like, I mean, Roman soldiers would, like, expose themselves at the temple. Um, They would burn a Torah scroll in front of it to kind of mock the Jews. Um, Ultimately, this this combination of financial exploitation and Rome's contempt for Judaism, um, because they they had a, a definite favoritism to other Gentiles. Um, even under Roman rule. Basically, because everyone else was more cooperative. The Jews look at this and say, well, they were just favoring everybody else. But frankly, the Jews weren't cooperating with Rome's program. Um, But it kind of brought this revolt to a head. In 66, um, this guy named Florus, he's the last Roman procurator. He stole vast quantities of uh, silver from the temple. The Jewish masses rioted and wiped out the small Roman garrison that was stationed in Jerusalem. Rome kept a a garrison of of soldiers there all the time, except during the Jewish festivals in which they brought in heavy artillery because there's there's nothing that's more likely to cause trouble than a bunch of Jews getting together on Passover, celebrating liberation when they're under some sort of foreign domination, okay so like you want a military presence, you hang out in Jerusalem during the feasts um, but there was a smaller garrison there once he he strips the takes the silver from the temple, the Jews riot um, They were successful there. There was a, uh, an, a ruler, uh, excuse me, uh, Cestius Gallus, who was a ruler in neighboring Syria, brought in a bunch of soldiers to, to basically combat this. There's a very interesting circumstance. He, he comes into the city, um, and he gets up to the walls of the temple, and uh, brings in, like, he's, he's leading a, a Roman contagion of, of, of folks, Roman standards and everything. He gets up to the wall, and then suddenly, unspe- like, there's no historical description of why this occurred. He turns around and leaves. Like he had made his way into Jerusalem, up to the temple gates, and then just turned around and left. The Jews attacked him as he left and eventually defeated his army as he was leaving. But they looked at these two things and said, boy, look, we're victorious. Look what we can do. We can stand up to the Roman army. We don't. We, we can get, a, get out from under these folks. So this leads to a problem. They're convinced that they could defeat Rome. And these, these zealots now, now start growing in number because they're convincing all these people we can get out from under this problem that we're in. When the Romans returned, they had 60,000 heavily armed and highly professional troops, and they uh, they launched their first attack against the Jewish states uh, up in Galilee, and 100,000 Jews were killed or sold into slavery. They were basically decimated. Um, the refugees, the people that got out of there, succeeded in escaping those massacres, and they fled to the last major Jewish stronghold, which is Jerusalem. Okay, There, they killed, they, the Jews, killed anyone in Jewish leadership who was not as radical as they were. All the more moderate Jewish leaders who headed the Jewish government at the revolts beginning in 66 were dead by AD 68. And not one of them died at the hands of a Roman. All of them were killed by the fellow Jews. So the scene was now kind of set, right? Like now now we got a big problem. you got a guy's holding fort in the temple. Rome is not going to tolerate this. They don't tolerate this type of thing. We talked about why Jesus is crucified, why they even crucify people, right? You lead rebellion against Rome, they kill you, they hang you on a cross and show you to everybody so that you don't keep doing that. Jesus was killed because he was a because he was running a least, a rebellion. Not because he was not, not a thief and not and those thieves that were around him, leices. Okay? They were revolutionaries as well. Okay, that's why Rome kills you. They're not going to stand for the Jews holding court here in the temple. So, outside of Jerusalem, the Roman troops prepared to besiege the city. Inside, the Jews were engaged in a suicidal civil war. Um, there was uh, rabbis that described this later on, and they said that the temple's destruction was not due to Roman military superiority, but to causeless hatred among the Jews. They killed mostly; they killed themselves. They, they, Josephus records that there were bodies stacked two stories high before Rome got there. They had melted down all these things that were inside the temple and used them for weaponry and, uh, against each other, primarily. Um, While the Romans won the war, in any case, the Jewish Civil War both hastened their victory and immensely increased the casualties. And as an example of one of the things that they did, in expectation of a Roman siege, the Jews had stockpiled a supply of dry food that could have fed the city for many years. This is going to show up? There was a massive famine in Jerusalem. The people of the city were dying, and they had stockpiled all this food in the temple in expectation of the Roman siege. But one of the warring zealot factions burned the entire supply, hoping to kind of encourage the people around them that there is no hope and to get on your horse and let's, let's fight this. A way to basically excite them for the war because there's no going back. We don't have any food. We need to engage this war. The starvation resulting from that act caused suffering as great as any of the Romans inflicted. Okay. Eventually, uh, Rome does take the temple. It was destroyed by the Jews. Rome finishes the job. Um, and then the temple itself is destroyed in 70 A.D. Okay? That's, a, that's the background that we're working with as far as the historical basis of talking about the, uh, the destruction of the temple. Any questions on any of that stuff? Okay. Let's talk about the context of which Jesus is approaching this discussion in Matthew 24. So, Jesus, if we look back in Matthew... And you guys don't have to turn to this. I will, though. Um, if we look back in Matthew 21, Jesus enter, enters the temple... Um, in kind of this dramatic and controversial fashion, right? He, it's, it's, the, it's where the triumphal entry happens, and then he cleanses the temple in Matthew 21, 12. Um, he, he pronounces basically judgment on it. And then when we get to Matthew 23 and 24, primarily 24, we find that he is abandoning it, never to return, and that it has no future except for to be destroyed. Let's look at Matthew, the very end of Matthew 23, so, section of Matthew 23 is, is basically these woes to the scribes and Pharisees. He, he's talking about, like, um, what, they've, what they've done, and like how they've, how, as, as people that are supposed to be leading God's people, where they've gone astray. And he's, he's pronouncing woe upon them. And then in Matthew 23, 37, we see him say this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not see your house is left to you desolate for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now Matthew 23 is this woe to the Pharisees. It's a judgment upon the temple and he says, your house has left you desolate. The first question is whose house, their house, whose house is the temple historically, That's God's house. He said, your house has left you desolate. Who's gone? God's God's gone. God's gone. There's there's this um, uh, word that they use. um, There's a a biblical word. It's the name of a a son. It's a story in Ezekiel, and it's it's Ichabod. It means the spirit has left. That's where the temple's at. Your house has left you desolate. He's pronounced judgment on the temple. Um, when we look at verse 39, I'll hit this real quick before we move on. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think that is most appropriately read as a, um, you will see me again. If this is you, this is not a foregone conclusion that they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a, um, a tie back to Psalm 118. Um, it is not likely they will receive him in this way. Some of them will, some Pharisees will. Um, we see guys like Nicodemus. Joseph of Arimathea, um, Paul. Okay, so it's not like it's it can't happen. Um, but I think the, the the way that the underlying Greek here is, I think this more implies that it is not a you will definitely see me. It's as is as, as these words are on your lips that th- then you will see me because you understand who I am. Did you have a question? Does
1: that mean every kneel Could that also mean every needle
0: vow? So I think that is a different distinction. Um, pointing towards the end of the world, where like there will be no doubt that Christ has returned, and every knee will be forced to bow because there is no getting around what it is that you that you've seen and and interacted with. This, I think, is pointing more to um, Jesus is, comes as his as his kingdom establishes. Some people will see it, and some people won't. And frankly, they're not likely to see it because I don't think they will be saying, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." Um, I, th- I think that's the context of which it sets. You. you bet. Uh, okay, so Matthew 24. Uh, one more warning before I get into this. Um, I don't have anything. Right, I just decided I was going to act like I'm write on a board. I don't. I don't have anything right on there. Um, uh, I'm going. I'm going to rehint my disclaimer. There are wise people who love Jesus that will not agree with the way that I talk about Matthew 24. Okay, I do not know everything about this passage. I'm. Um, I'm telling you what I think to my uh, most reasoned and best opinion of how to read the scripture. Okay, it is perfectly okay if you disagree with me here. Um, there will be parts that I will tell you I'm not convinced entirely of this description I think it is the most reasonable one As I read the scripture But there are parts of this where I'm like Eh, I, I don't think it's rock solid Okay, does that make sense to everybody? Alright, we're going to try to read it in the most reasoned way possible And, uh, and get there as, as we understand scripture Alright Matthew 24 Jesus left the temple and was going away When his disciples came to point out to him The buildings of the temple This is funny It's a funny thing for them to do. He's just pronounced judgment on the temple, and then they walk away, they leave the temple mount, and you go through this Kidron Valley, and you end up going on the Mount of Olives. And traditionally, as you leave the temple, what you would do is you'd sit on this Mount of Olives and kind of look back at the temple before you continue your journey on. And that's basically where they're at. And after he's just (laughs) pronounced destruction of it, the, the disciples are like, hey, look at those beautiful buildings. On the temple, it's an interesting thing. It continues to reveal that our disciples are just everyday folk like you and I, and they seem to not get it often as we don't get it. Okay, so Jesus says, "You shall see all these." Uh, sorry, you see all these. Do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be one, not be left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He's pronounced judgment on the temple twice. Okay, that's number two, the second time that he's done that. Um, it says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? All right. We need to parse out their question. Um, Hey, actually let, let's, real quick. Let's talk about the temple. So in, in Matthew 24, two, um, I w- this seems like we're, we're coming out of left on this thing, but I want to understand what this temple thing that Jesus is saying, what it will do in his life. If we look at uh, 2661 in Matthew, there we go. Jesus is before Caiaphas um, and the Jewish council and look at the accusation. It said, um, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. This is the accusation that gets Jesus ultimately put to death. It's, it's what he says about the temple. If you look in Matthew twenty seven forty, look what happens on the crucifixion. I'll start in 37. It says, And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers, again I would say revolutionaries, were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by it derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. It's a big deal to say the temple is going to be destroyed. This is going to follow him. And it doesn't just impact him. It influences the martyrdom of Stephen. This is part of what gets Stephen killed in Acts. is they say, he follows the man who said the temple would be destroyed. Okay, now, let's look back at Matthew
1: 24.3. Yep. Uh, so back then, about 500 years before this, uh, right as Israel is being taken over by the Assyrians, and then finally uh, the Babylonians are right on the doorstep of the southern kingdom, which is Judah. Um, capital of that southern kingdom is Jerusalem. And the guys are sitting there you know, debating, are we going to get conquered by Babylon or not? And they're basically saying, no, there's no way we could get conquered like the northern kingdom did, because we have the temple of the Lord. And that was their defense. They figured, well, so long as we've got the temple of the Lord, there's no way Nebuchadnezzar can touch us. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he pilfers the temple.
0: Right idolization of the temple seems to be a consistent problem with the Jewish people, right? Yeah, yeah, they, make, they, they continue to make that mistake. Okay, um, it, did anybody have their uh, Blue Letter Bible app with them? You got it? Okay, so this is, this is where we need to be careful about what the disciples are asking, okay? He said that uh, there will not uh, be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He's basically described the fall of the temple. And here's what the disciples ask. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the close of the age? Now, what is these things? The it's got to be the destruction of the temple, right? It can't be something else. Right. Uh, that's what he just told. Yeah, yeah, it would make sense in context, right? Yeah. It's, he's got to be talking, when will the destruction of the temple be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the close of the age? Now, the way that that's worded, um, there's... This is where my, my Greek gets dangerous, but like the way those things are connected in the Greek, that is, that is one question, basically. Okay, It is not two separate questions like, tell us when these things will happen, and separately discuss to us about what will be the sign of your second coming and as the close of the age. What they're asking is, when will these things be? When will the temple be destroyed? That is, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Why do they think the destruction of the temple is the end of the age? Yeah, yeah. How can, it's, the same, it's the same problem right before they were taken captive by Babylon. How, certainly, this can't be right. If the temple is gone, if our ability to sacrifice to God and atonement for our sins is gone, if our, everything that our daily lives are centered around is gone, it must be the return of the Messiah, of the conquering king. How else could you even understand that? Does their question make sense from their perspective? Ah yes.
1: Might as well burn up the earth after that point if
0: God's rejected. The question. Yes. Um, I think Hezekiah, before he
1: lost the 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 community, hid the Ark. Ark of the Covenant. Yes. so basically God
0: was wasn't in the temple at that time. Right. God- Uh, if you if you see like that as far as we know the ark never made it back like it it never makes it to the temple as a matter of fact there there's a story of uh, Pompey who's a Roman general who goes into the uh to the holy of holies in the temple um, within the first century and it's it's there's nothing in there there's nothing in there and so they're in there like going through their normal rituals as if the ark is in there and so no yeah i would i would say that that is a pronouncement of judgment already right yeah
1: did that come-
0: Uh, I, I don't know. Dave, do you remember? Um,
1: the, that was kind of some of the issues that, during the exile where the people were saying, right, now that we're slaves over in this country, has God abandoned us? And if so, should we just start worshiping uh, Babylonian gods? And that's where a lot of the ministry of those prophets, uh, like Daniel and, yeah. and Hosea, is, said, is reminding them, and Jeremiah especially, yeah. um, reminding them that God has not abandoned you even though you've changed geography. And you definitely changed status from free peoples to now slave peoples. God is still with you. He still has plans and purpose for you, even though you can't be oriented around this, this temple, this building anymore. And it was still something that was just very foreign to to the Jewish people, even though they're hearing it from, from the words of these prophets. Uh, about what's going on.
0: And it's interesting to see the various reactions to that too, right? Because like, as part of the exile, for those that are left behind in Samaria, they, they set up a temple and they start worshiping on Mount Gerizim. Right, so like they, they just basically try to replace it, and it's uh, it's Darius when he sends the people back. He says, "Rebuild for you know, I acknowledge who this God is. The temple should be be rebuilt." Right, so like they are still very much focused around trying to put this. A lot of a lot of what their identity is baked into is in this temple, and so as they rebuild their nation, that's how things are established, which is understandable from where they're coming from. Right, like even as they were tra- traversing through the wilderness, coming out of Egypt, like God had them build a tabernacle. It is where heaven and earth intersect. It is where God meets earth. And so, like that means a lot to them. And so, it makes sense that they're oriented, but they also stop listening, right? They're, they they stop listening to God, and they um, they are they're being very choosy about what they follow and what they don't. But yeah, but that's it does make sense that the question that they're asking does seem to conflate two things. It, it says these things. This must be the end of the age. The temple being destroyed has got to be the end of everything. That's that's what the Messiah would do. This would be where all the judgment would come. So, yeah, like that, right? This just happened, right? Like it's just. It just happened where Jesus says that, and then the disciples kind of reveal that we're still, we're still missing it, but they also miss it for the rest of us so that we can we can dig it in. All right. So, um, these things has got to be the destruction of the temple. There's going to be probably 15 times as we read through that we're going to be like, yes, d- this is in context of the days that they're talking in, and then we want to parachute off and say, uh, this has got to be the end of the world, okay? Let's try to keep our reference in here in what Jesus is actually speaking about. Um, Dave, you kind of... you. back to last week. Yes. Uh, Since I didn't get my no, that's all right. So yeah, one of the things they asked was, um, "What will be the close of the age or the end of the age?" They used the word. Uh, yes, sorry, they used Cintalea. Another one? No, that was there were two. There was Telos and Cintalea. Those are our two. Those were our two. Telos, we said, uh, it traditionally means the end of a process or an event. Okay. Matthew uses telos always for an end of a process or an event. Um, we see it at the end of Jesus' trial. The end of the trial is the telos of the trial. Okay? End of a process or an event. Suntilea specifically is used for basically the end of everything. The end of the age. Yes, like everything has come to has come to pass. Um, Jesus says this at the end of Matthew, he said, I will be with you even unto the end of the Suntileia. Cent- end of the age is Suntileah. Uh, the very end of Matthew. I will be with you even to the end of the age. That's Sintalea. Okay, that's that's the end of the age. Okay, so it's important what it is that they're asking. They're saying, when will the end of the age be? Your coming and the end of the age and the destruction of the temple, all coupled into one. Okay, no, they're they're saying it's a Sintalea. It's a Sintalea. That's what they're asking. Yeah, as we get farther, um what we'll find is that Jesus describes it as a telos. The destruction of the temple is a telos. This is not the end of everything, it is the end of a process. Okay? All right. Um what were we talked about end of the age? Okay, why do they we talk about why they complate, conflate those two things? Um I'm gonna give you I think this is helpful, so I'm gonna tell you where I think this is going. Okay, as opposed because we there's too much to weed through for us to like take it bit by bit and say, okay. Now, put it all together in a pile and sort it out. So I'm going to tell you where, that, where I think this is going. Here's what I think Jesus is doing. He's taking their question, and he's separating into two different answers. One concerns the destruction of the temple, and one concerns the end of the age. All right. The destruction of the temple will have clear signs that precede it. You will know that it is happening. Okay. You can expect to see these things, and then the temple will be destroyed. He will list those out very clearly. While the end of the world, the end of the age, will have no signs. There will be no distinct signs to know the end of the world. Okay, the, the temple, yes, clear signs. End of the world, it's Jesus' second coming, no clear signs. All right, the two of them will be separated by a significant length of time. We, we you'll see that more in twenty-five. It gives um, descriptions about when the second coming happens, um, and there's a significant length of time there. Both will be described uh, using new creation language. Okay, as if there is a is a cataclysmic shift in your political sphere. Or your creation, Uh, there's a lot of language that the Bible uses about new creation, and you're gonna see both of those to describe these events. Okay? One has clear signs, one has no signs. Um, one is, um, they're separated by a significant leak of time, um, and then both are are described using new creation language. Okay? That's what I think Jesus is doing, and we're gonna see if the language kind of parses that out. And Jesus answered them See that no one leads you astray. Who's the you? Yeah, it's got to be the disciples, doesn't it? Yeah. So, again, we have two hints right now that this it's going to be very difficult to make this the end of the world if he's saying this is about these things, destruction of the temple, and make sure you, disciples. Okay, He's talking to them. If you isn't you, it's not anything. Language doesn't work at all if you isn't them as the disciples who are sitting around. Okay, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Let's talk about that one. Um, I tried to make a copy of this, and apparently I don't know how to work the uh, copy machine. Like, I put a book on there, and I hit the button, and uh, it, it, it laughed at me, and it mocked what I was trying to do with my life. But there's um, this is a book by Richard Horsley. It's called Bandits, Prophets, and Messiahs. Um, it is about popular movements um, of, of people that were basically trying to rile up the Jewish people. Okay? The thought of Jesus being the only Messiah is a foreign thought. To the Jews of the time. Okay, we know Jesus is Messiah. Yeah, that's yeah, uh, yeah. Like uh, however many we got, ten. Um, there were many messiahs at the time. What what did the Jews expect out of the Messiah? Anybody know? Yes, yeah. They expected basically they, they were under a foreign rule. Uh, uh, it could for it was it was Babylon. It was Assyria. It was under Greece. And now it's under Rome. They're under a foreign rule. And they said, that this Messiah will liberate us from these things. Okay, This, this can't continue this way. And Yahweh will be worshipped on Zion, and the enemies will be under our feet. Okay, That's, And they were expecting that liberation. Some Jews were expecting that liberation from Messiah. It's probably not fair to say all of them. It's all the word uh, ambivalent about the whole thing. Okay? But there were sections of Judaism that said uh, that the Messiah will come. And so when is the Messiah figure most likely to rise up, except when the Jewish people are most oppressed? Okay? That's when, if you want to rile up a people and start a rebellion, you're going to be able to try to do that when the foot is hardest on the people. And so Messiahs pop up. Here's some examples um, of some first century uh, Messiahs. There was uh, Docetheus the Samaritan, uh, Simon uh, Magus. He's, he's um, described in Acts 8. Uh actually here hold on let's read that real quick cuz he he's an interesting character. Okay, here we go. Uh this is this is Simon the magician. Okay? This is this is the guy where it says there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. Uh so that, that that's our guy. He's the guy that tries to buy the Holy Spirit. Um but but he's effective in what he's doing because he's trying to to kind of rabble-rouse people. Um, you get uh, uh, Thudius, Judas the Galilean. He's in Acts 5.37. Hold on. He, he's an interesting character too. Um, here we go. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, uh, Thudius rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Okay, another guy... Who had uh, who? We have historical documentation. Who claims to be a Messiah, trying to get the people together to rebel against Rome? Uh, Acts five thirty-seven, or so five thirty-six to thirty-seven. Sorry. Uh, and there's a guy named Menahem, and he's he's documented in uh, Josephus's War of the Jews um, that describes kind of this kind of the same thing. There was a um, in Acts twenty-one thirty-eight. Um, This is in AD 52 to 58. There was an Egyptian deceiver who collected thirty thousand followers and persuaded them to accompany him to the Mount of Olives, telling them that that from there they would see the walls of Jerusalem fall down at his command as a prelude to the capture of the Roman garrison and their obtaining the sovereignty of the city. Okay, Jews are, are are willing to be dragged into this, and if you remember, remember the the what the zealots were trying to do, like they succeeded, they succeeded in getting these guys kind of all jazzed up for the potential to be outside. Of of the foot of Rome, uh, there was a guy named um, where's he at? Oh, Jerome. So Jerome was the guy who um, first translated the uh, the New Testament into Latin. Um, he would have been a third century guy. And it says at the time of the Jew- Jewish captivity um, of uh, yeah, by Jewish captivity, many Jewish leaders were claiming to be the Christ. There were so many that there were three distinct camps at the time of the destruction of the temple. Three distinct camps of people who said we're, we're Christ, we're the Messiah. So when Jesus says, back in Matthew 24, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. Was that happening during the time of the destruction of the temple? Yes. Yes. And that's going to be our question here. Like if I want to orient this that these things apply to the destruction of the temple, we need to vet them out and say, did this happen? Did this actually occur during that time? All right. Uh, 24, 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not not yet. That end. Hello. Okay, I have
1: a question. Why why does he say this must take place? Why do all you know the the false prophets and everything? Why must it take place?
0: So one, because I think they're they're the signs, right? They're the things that he's using to key off to say, no, the destruction is coming. and what I don't know on the must, there's like a must that's like a godly imperative, like this has, this is deemed by God, it has to happen, or whether he's saying, I know you will be worried about these things, but don't worry, they they must take place for the things to evolve. I don't, I don't I'm not sure about that. Yeah, it could be either one of those things. There's there's actually, and the reason I say that godly imperative, and this is interesting, there's a must in in Revelation where it says um, Satan must be released. Must be released. And you're like, what? Must be released? And the must there is like a godly imperative. Like this is happening. This is going down and God decrees that it is happening. Yes?
1: Well the cool thing that happens around this, because right now all the Christians are in Jerusalem
0: around that area. God says you've got to go tell the whole world but
1: nobody's leaving. So he goes, okay, now you gotta leave because everything's gonna get destroyed. Now he gets the gospel spread out to the rest of the
0: world. It does have that effect. Yeah. Certainly. It does have that effect. Yep. There's, yeah, And there's a question that's probably hanging in the back of our minds is like, could, could the temple have remained? Could, could Jesus establish his kingdom on earth and the temple remains? I, well, I get that, right? But like, let's just think with me hypothetically. What does the temple represent? What does Jesus represent? And could you have left the temple there? No. What did we talk about this Sunday? Jesus says one greater than the temple is here. It can't remain. Well, it's
1: like we talked that it was corrupt anyway. The whole thing with the Pharisees and everything was was corrupt in what they were doing.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. I think the temple could not have remained. And I think that is one of the things, if you look at the things that Jesus accomplished by his life, death, resurrection, ascension, it, it simply could not stand. The temple could not remain. It had to be destroyed.
1: Well, and also you're asking Jews who have established, has a pattern of behavior and a pattern of lifestyle that every year they have they make this pilgrimage. Yep. And all that, their culture has changed. Jesus changed the culture.
0: Yeah. Yep. So let's let's talk about, uh, uh, let's see, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place. Um, let's see if that was true. So we talked about... Um, we talked about this this stuff, like 39 A.D. The stuff with Caligula, um, leading up to the destruction of 66 to 70. After Nero dies, there are four different emperors. Okay, after the Roman Emperor Nero dies, um, what is also uh, ah, I don't remember the names of the guys. They're on the they're on the thing that I was trying to print off. Okay, but there's there's like there's civil unrest within Rome. Okay, you can't have uh, when when. When the ruler generally gets there by force or influence, and you go through three guys in the matter of a few years, that's unrest. That's, that's pretty, pretty fierce civil problems going on in Rome. Um, there were lots of rumors of Rome's demise during those, that, that civil war. Um, this is interesting. What did we talk about week one? What was the Pax Romana? Anybody remember? Yeah, the peace of Rome. What does Rome promise? Now, what are we seeing? Wars... And rumors of wars, they're not be able to keep their own house together. Okay, they're they're, they're running through rulers. They're um, Claudius when he was uh, when he was the Roman emperor. and He was before kind of those uh, the three uh, the three emperor guys. Um, he was there was a constant war with Britain. Um, remember Rome's a big empire, right There's a lot going on. They're constantly having problems with the peripheries of the empire when they go through and conquer something, they have to kind of get them to join to come on board. they offer them citizenship or uh, and they start indoctrinating them. they start uh, educating them because when you have the power of education, you have the power to say, "This is why Rome is great okay and that's how they get these people. They largely didn't keep armies of their own on the borders right they conscripted people that were on these peripheral territories to defend rome on their own and here's the deal is those guys can be kind of influenced right they can either be taken on if the rome rome can't get there quick enough that's why they built roads is so they could get to these parts of the territory quick enough and transport weaponry and stuff but like also um you know if someone offers them something better they can be influenced all right. So, th- th- there's constantly wars on the periphery of the empire. There were at least three Jewish insurrections against Rome prior to the 60s, one that was violently put down. Um, Claudius had declared martial law in Palestine after the Jewish insurrection at the death of Agrippa the first. The Germanic tribes in present-day Belgium and Germany made perpetual trouble for the legions. There's a Balkan war that was going on at the same time. There's all kinds of problems going on in Rome. Oh, here we go. Uh, the the princes were uh, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and Domitian. Those were the guys. Did you did you work your magic on it, Dave Herrick? Sweetest. I was going to draw it out by hand, 20 copies. Um, I would say that as you look at this list, I, I believe it's conservative based upon kind of what Jerome describes. Um, I'm not sure that he's captured all, um, all of them that church history would remember. Um, but he is, he's also a—he's um, uh, not an explicitly Christian historian. He's just a, like a sociologist and history guy. Okay, But yeah, so you see the—on the, the left-hand side, I think, is where your Roman emperors are, and you see that they're changing hands um, with Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and Domitian— there were several foreign wars? Yeah, do we think do we have wars and rumors of wars? I think so. I think so. And and here's the deal, I I don't want to beat a dead horse on this stuff, but I I want you to know like this isn't coming from anywhere. It's pretty easy for me to say this was destruction of the temple, let's move on, right? I want us to see this even outside of what Jesus said, can we verify that these things happened as part of the destruction of the temple? Okay, that's why we're going through this process. Okay. 24 verse 7. Um For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Let's talk about earthquakes. Historians record 17 major earthquakes in the early Christian period. Um, There's a a significant one in AD 60 or 61, depends on who you're talking to, um, that destroys Colossae, that's what letters to the Colossians were written to, uh, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. This, This is interesting. Those three cities... Um, Laodicea, Colossae is, not, is basically not rebuilt There's a bunch of guys that squat there And try to establish a colony And, it's not, and it doesn't happen uh, Hierapolis is rebuilt And they take money from the Roman government to rebuild um, That's a pretty popular destination They had hot springs um, Like really hot water and hot springs in Hierapolis And uh, that would be sent down a mountain Into Laodicea In which it would become uh, warm And this is part of where you, you see in Revelation He says you, uh, yeah, you're lukewarm okay? your, your water's not good for anything um, Laodicea, however, says uh, uh, d- refuses to take Roman money. They say, we'll rebuild on our own. We're just fine, thank you very much. And so it's, that's an interesting uh, comparison because when Jesus talks, he's writing, uh, John's writing a letter in Revelation to, to these seven churches of Asia Minor. And if you look, it goes along a trade route. Like the letter is basically supposed to be passed on between these churches and Laodicea is the last one. And one of the things that Jesus says is that you say that I need nothing. I can provide for myself. That's, that's what the recorder is saying in Revelation 3. Um, and Jesus indicts that. It's interesting that this earthquake um, that hits them in AD 60 or 61 is kind of the catalyst of some of this pompacity coming from Laodicea that Jesus calls out um, in, that, uh, in the Revelation letter that goes to them. Um, all right, so did we have earthquakes? Yeah, I think we're pretty confident. I think we're fair to say we have, uh, we have earthquakes. Um, Seneca writes, he was a uh, a Roman historian, and he says, How often have cities in Asia, how often in Acacia, been laid low by a single shock of earthquake? How many towns in Smyrna, how many in Macedonia have been swallowed up? How often has Paphos collapsed? Not infrequently are tidings brought to us of the utter destruction of entire cities. This is that area where these major earthquakes are happening. Uh, Josephus says, describing Jerusalem, The city was besieged on both sides. There broke out a prodigious storm in the night with the utmost violence and very strong winds, with the largest showers of rain, with continued lightnings, terrible thunderings, and amazing concussions, and bellowings of the earth that was in an earthquake. These things were a manifest indication that some destruction was coming upon men when the system of the world was put into this disorder, and anyone would guess that these wonders foreshadowed some grand calamities that were coming. Josephus does not believe in Jesus as the Christ. He doesn't care much for uh, biblical prophecy, especially like New Testament biblical prophecy. He understands it. He was a Jew, right? But he's not saying this because he's in cahoots with, uh, with the disciples or with Jesus. Okay? Yeah. Do we have earthquakes? Okay. I think we can make a case that we got earthquakes. Let's talk about famines. Um, this, is, this is a little long, so stick with me. But I'm going to read this to you because I, uh, I think it kind of highlights some of the stuff that was going on uh, as part of the destruction of the temple. Um, Jewish Wars, this is, uh, Josephus as well, Book 6, Chapter 1. Said, Thus did the miseries of Jerusalem grow worse and worse every day. Sorry, I, I said this was in that time frame, right? This was between 66 and 70, um, a part of the siege of the city. Um, the miseries of Jerusalem grew worse and worse every day, and the seditious were still more irritated by the calamities they were under, even while the famine preyed upon themselves after it had preyed upon the people. And indeed, the multitude of carcasses that lay in heaps one upon another was a horrible sight. And produced a pestilential stench, which was a hindrance to those that would make sallies out of the city and fight the enemy. But as those were to go to go in battle array, who had been already used to 10,000 murders, and must tread upon those dead bodies as they marched along, so they were not terrified, nor did they pity men as they marched over them, nor did they deem this affront uh, offered to the deceased to be any ill omen to themselves. Alright, I'm going to skip down a little bit. This is in chapter 3 of Jewish Wars. Now of those that perished by famine in the city, the number was prodigious. And the miseries they underwent were unspeakable. For if so much as the shadow of any kind of food did anywhere appear, a war was commenced presently. And the dearest friends fell a-fighting one with another about it, snatching from each other the most miserable sports of life. Nor would men believe that those who were dying had no food. But the robbers would search them when they were expiring, lest any one should have concealed food in their bosoms and counterfeited dying. Those robbers gaped for want and ran about stumbling and staggering around like mad dogs and reeling against the doors of the houses like drunken men. They would also, in the great distress they were in, rush into the very same houses two or three times in one and the same day. Moreover, their hunger was so intolerable that they obliged them to chew everything, while they gathered such things as the most sordid animals would not touch and endured to eat them. Nor did they at length abstain from girdles and shoes, and the very leather which belonged to their shields they pulled off and gnawed. And the very wisps of old hay became food to some, and some gathered up fibers and sold a very small weight of them for four drachma. That's not very much money. Um... Continuing, there was a certain woman that dwelt beyond Jordan. Her name was Mary. Her father was Eleazar of the village Bethesda, which signifies the house of Hyssop. She was eminent for her family and her wealth and had fled away to Jerusalem with the rest of the multitude and was with them besieged therein at this time. Rest of the multitude, who? Where were they leaving? From They, they were leaving from going to Jerusalem. Where did we see a mass amount of Jews flee from to go to Jerusalem during this time? Galilee. Galilee. She was part of. The, she was a wealthy group that was fleeing Galilee, where things were going poorly in the Jewish rebellion against Rome. So she flees to Jerusalem. The uh, other effects of this woman had already been seized upon, such, I mean, as she had brought with her out of Perea and removed to the city. What she had treasured up besides, as also what food she had contrived to save, had also been carried off by the rapacious guards who came every day running into her house for that purpose. This put the poor woman into a very great passion, and by the frequent reproaches and imprecations. She eased at these rapacious villains. She had provoked them to anger against her, but none of them, either out of the indignation she had raised against herself or out of the commiseration of her case, would take away her life. They wouldn't kill her. And if she had found any food, she perceived her labors were for others and not for herself. And it was now become impossible for her any way to find any more food while the famine pierced through her very bowels and marrow, when also her passion was fired to a degree beyond the famine itself. Nor did she consult with anything but with her passion and the necessity she was in. She then attempted a most unnatural thing. And snatching up her son, who was a child sucking at her breast, she said, O thou miserable infant, for whom shall I preserve thee in this war, this famine, and this sedition? As to the war with the Romans, if they preserve our lives, we must be slaves. This famine also will destroy us, even before that slavery comes upon us. Yet are these seditious rogues more terrible than both the other? Come on, be thou my food, and be thou a fury to these seditious varlets." And a byword to the world, which is all that is now wanting to complete the calamities of us Jews. As soon as she had said this, she slew her son, and then roasted him, and ate the one half of him, and kept the other half by her concealed. Upon this the seditious came in presently, and smelling the horrid scent of the food, they threatened her that they would cut her throat immediately if she did not show them what food she had gotten already. She replied that she had saved a very fine portion of it for them, and withal uncovered what was left of her son. Hereupon they were seized with the horror and amazement of mind and stood astonished at the sight when she said to them This is mine own son and what hath been done was mine own doing come eat of this food for I've eaten of it myself Do you not do you pretend to be either more tender than a woman or more compassionate than a mother? But if you be so scrupulous and do abominate this my sacrifice as I've eaten the one half Let the rest be reserved for me also After which those men went out trembling being never so much affrighted at anything as they were at this And with some difficulty they left the rest of the meat to the mother upon which the whole city was full of this horrid action immediately. And while everybody laid this miserable case before their own eyes, they trembled as if this unheard of action had been done by themselves. So those that were thus distressed by the famine were very desirous to die, and those already dead were esteemed happy because they had not lived long enough either to hear or see such miseries. Famine? Yeah. Yeah. The Bible will describe this time as, as the not being something worse Upon the earth. And it's easy to dismiss that as some side of hyperbole, as if perhaps it wasn't really that bad. Now, it's relative, certainly. But yeah, famine. All these are about the beginning of the birth pains. What do we know about uh, birth pains? (laughs) Good answer, Custis. I'll give you two things. When birth pains are present, you know one, a new creation. Is about to enter the scene. New life, new creation is about to happen. And second, it's inevitable. Okay? No one said the birth pains are on, and they're like, well, I'll get to it when I get to it. <laughs> okay? It's it's inevitable. It is going to happen. This is not, these birth pains, the description here, this is not a sign of something. It's saying it is inev- inevitable. It is going to happen. Okay, moving on. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Who? You. You that's that's got to be a current reference, right? We can't jump here. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, tell us, will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come and still tell us, still tell us. All right. 24, um, nine, you, that's got to be the disciples. Okay. Note that w- w- this, this should, uh, some of this should wax familiar to us. Um, we've heard this before. Many will fall away, betray one another, hate one another. They will, uh, deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Where did we just hear that? Anybody Remember? Matthew ten what did he what did he tell them before he sent them out yeah what did he tell them this this is what's going to happen to you right it was in current it was that generation then it's this generation now okay the effects of following Jesus are are going to continue to make their way through history same same problem do we see this do we see the disciples put to death hated by all nations for their namesake yeah yeah of the disciples, uh, let's exclude Judas because uh, he takes care of it himself, all the rest of the disciples are killed, martyred, save John. And it wasn't because they didn't try. They tried to boil John in a vat of oil and simply failed and then exiled him to Patmos in okay, an island called Patmos. Everybody else, martyred. Yes, this will happen to them. We already talked about this, the false uh, prophets. Let's, let's talk about it. So here's, here's where I threw my hand up first time. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Um, Can somebody use your Blue Letter Bible app and tell me the word for world? Uh, It's going to be 14. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Oikamene. 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 I'm not going to bother to write it. I won't write it right anyway. Same, same reason Kim can't pronounce it. I can't write it. <laughs> yeah. Oikamene. Now, now whole world. Let's look how the Bible uses it. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to say it never refers to the entire everything, although that tends to be cosmos. But even Paul will use cosmos in an interesting way. But um, they use that, that same word in Luke um, Luke 2, one. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world, oikamene, should be registered. Can that be the whole world? Does Caesar Augustus rule over the whole world? The ah, where do you get that selfishness? You say whole world, my world. Oikeimenae, oikeimenae. Okay. Uh, Acts eleven twenty eight is going to use something very similar. Acts eleven twenty eight. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. All the world? Roman Empire. Roman Empire. Okay? Well, So. Could that be limited to, just like, the Jewish territory? It's, po- it's possible. It's possible. They, they do tend to use it um, in, what, in a way in which seems to refer to the Roman Empire, but, like, they're not exclusive to that. Like, they do use that word pretty flexibly. As a matter of fact, Paul will say, um, when he says, when the gospel is pronounced to the whole world, he does use cosmos, but seems to otherwise imply still Roman Empire with the way that he's talked about because obviously they haven't gone to, say, North America by the time that he says that. He says the gospel has been pro- proclaimed to the world. And he uses cosmos, which we would think, you know, cosmos. Um, so they, they do use the word flexibly, but the reason we're talking about it is because when I see uh, throughout the whole world, I think, yeah, proclaimed to the whole world, end of times, got it, definitely. Okay? Not the way they use it. Yes?
1: Um, it, it should be noted that the, the word, um, at least in the Bible, it gives the definition of uh, Thought of as the Roman Empire, subjects of the Roman Empire, or just the Greek inhabited world. It's a way of distinguishing basically civilized world versus barbarians. Oh, right. Outside. Um, and the root of it, oikos, means house. So basically people who live in houses as opposed to those crazy tribal. The,
0: the Visigoths.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. yeah. Parthians? Yeah,
1: the ones where Babylon used to be. It, yeah, but if you're inside the Roman Empire, you think of everything outside the Roman Empire as uncivilized. So, much like American kind
0: of... Yeah, 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 yep, exactly. Okay, so, we and we ended it with...
1: So you're saying then by that, that everywhere, like in all these references, they're referring just to the Roman Empire now?
0: In context, it does that does appear that way, yeah. Yep. In context, it appears that way. And here's the thing: is look, as you use that blue letter Bible app. Right, like you're going to come across a word that will be used in multiple contexts. And so that, that's up to us to try to figure out what is the right context in which it sits in. Because um, you could. There are times when some words will say. Um, not Matthew is distinct. Seems to be distinct on how you, how he uses telos and "suntalea." Not everyone is. Not everyone seems to be that distinct on how they use it. So we have to. So we're using context to help drive how we understand that because remember we talked about how people read greek right all caps no spaces no punctuation marks no paragraphs no chapter subheadings right it's strings of letters and so context is the only thing that we really have to kind of deduce how it's being used matthew does seem consistent with that other people not so much yes correct correct Mm-hmm. But if one of the other writers only uses the of the word. It's not, it's sometimes not as clear. And we'll run into this with Matthew is very, seems to be clear with how he uses this word, parousia, or parousia um, which is when Jesus comes. Um, he seems to make a distinction on the word come and that is not kind of his return and then that, which would otherwise signify his return. Um, I would say some of the other gospel writers are not as clear in that distinction. Matthew seems to be. But again, th- like part of the reason we're even talking about this in this way is because we you do kind of have to fight this a little bit, right? And figure out where it sits in context um, because of the translation, because of how things are transferred. Definitely more of an art than the science. Seven forty-five. Holy cats. Holy buckets. All right. We're oh yeah, we're gonna make this definitely. How many? How many we got? Seven thousand verses. All right. Um, oh, do we have time for this? Ooh. The gospel of the King yeah, let's, let's try it. Let's start the go- abomination of desolation. Um, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are on Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. That is describing this period right here. And I feel like we've gotten a taste of that so far, right? All right. And uh, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone who says, do you look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the Eagle. eagles will gather. There the eagles will gather. Okay. Now, who the elect? Okay. The the um, these would be basically followers of Jesus. Uh, yes as a, as a group yes you think of it as the community of the church yeah Um I don't I don't think that's what it's describing. Um, I think this actually still sits within the context of it's he's still describing the destruction of the temple. I think he's still within that context. Um, and it, w- let's let's check on that. Let's see if that's the case though. So if he says the abomination of desolation um there was. Uh, let's talk about what this is. This is described in Daniel 9, uh, 11, and 12. Um, I'll be honest with you. We don't have the time to parse through Daniel 9. Um, a lot of a lot of millennial views come out of what I would consider to be a little bit of a wacky rendering of Daniel 9. If depending on where we get next week, we, we might try to look at it. Um, but let's just let's just say. Let's. I think we're okay to just say it, it's described in Daniel 9. OK, there is no one that is arguing that the abomination of desolation um, is happening around this time period, regardless of your millennial view. Um, There is some thought that it happened. It could have happened before this, the destruction of the temple. Um, But uh, we probably don't have the time to to parse out Daniel 9 specifically. So um, we will see what we can get to. My my guess is we won't get to it, Um, but I might figure out a a different way to to, uh, to talk about it with you. All right. So let's let's I think we can solve this problem actually pretty easy. Let's look in Luke 21. Because there's a lot of question about what the abomination of desolation is. And let's look at Luke 21.20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. I think we got it. I think we got ourselves an abomination of desolation. Okay, Luke has the advantage here Because he's writing after Matthew and Mark. So, I think this actually is a pretty clear parallel. Because if you look in Luke 21, what's the context we're talking about? Destruction of the temple. Jesus foretells wars and persecution starting in verse 10. It's a parallel passage of which Luke says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. Is that not the same description we're getting in Matthew? Yeah, it's a parallel passage. For all the interesting things that I've thought that I've heard people say, this is the abomination of desolation, um, I feel like Luke kind of gives it away. Now, what you will find is people who otherwise would want to put these things happening in the future, they will say Luke 21 is not a parallel passage. They'll say the stuff that he describes beforehand is the same thing, and then he's talking about the future, and then he's talking about the things that Jesus is talking about again in Matthew. okay? I don't think that's tenable. I just don't think the way that you you read that, the flow of that, I just don't think that's tenable at all. I think he's clearly describing the abomination of desolation as Roman armies coming into the city. Now, why would that be an abomination? What did I say the Jews would not stand for? They would not tolerate. They were willing to be killed because of it. Uh, Anything else brought into the temple? Yeah. Yeah. Idols coming in into Jerusalem and the temple. Okay. They would not tolerate this. There is a thought that the abomination of desolation occurred at the time of um, Antiochus Epiphanes. He um, was—he basically went in the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar. Um, Okay, that seems like an abomination. I'm with you. Okay, that's the type of thing that is offensive to them. But let's let's go back to our end, um, that end part of Matthew 24, and let's go back to our vultures. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures were gathered. I said the corpse—corpses are battle. Basically, bodies from battle. And why did I say that that is not... Why do I think that's not a vulture? Of the Greek. <laughs> Go to the Greek. <laughs> yeah, because the Greek, nowhere, nowhere in antiquity is that word, itoi, ever translated as vulture. Ever. Anywhere. Except for right here. And I say right here in your modern, tra- in most of your modern translations. If you remember, Pant said uh, the KJV and the NKJV rendered as eagle. The Geneva Bible from the 1600s, eagle. Okay, our modern translations, NIV, ESV, um, those types seem to want to render it vulture. That is an eagle. Now, if there are, we said what well, we said. What happened in the temple? The Jews basically destroyed themselves. Right? It, Civil war inside the temple destroyed themselves. Rome comes in. Um. But this, but this is not eighty seventy. This is not the destruction of the temple itself. Okay, this happens in eighty sixty six. Do you guys? Do you remember earlier I said there was a man named Cestius Gallus? Okay, this this general after this thing in, that goes on in Galilee, or sorry, this was before all that stuff. Sorry, um, they they uh, the uh, the emperor raids the silver from the temple and they fight out the the, the garrison that's there. Okay, and then Cestius Gallus leads in another group of soldiers and he he gets through the walls in Jerusalem and approaches the temple carrying Roman standard, which is which has a symbol of a eagle. Eagle. Okay? They had already started this. We said that between sixty-six and sixty-eight, that these guys were, were basically fighting internally. Uh, And even within the temple, killing each other if they didn't agree with the zealot position, right? And so what do we have in 66 but Cestius Gallus approaching with an invading army that surrounds Jerusalem with an eagle that sits above corpses? Do we have ourselves potentially an abomination of desolation? There's something that's very convincing to that for me because it, it allows me to read this in the context in which I think it sits, okay, it, it allows me to, I don't know, interpret the like let the Greek be what it is. Because I make it vulture because I say corpse. I don't know how to deal with that. It must be the end of times. Jesus, they need to create a bunch of vultures to eat all the bodies. And there's no connotation of eating or circling here, right? It's just eagle above. That makes a lot of sense to me. Is that debatable? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's debatable. Do I think it's a pretty... It does it seem like a likely rendering to me? It does, it does. So, and look, look at um, look at how it falls out. Right when you see it, let those of are Judea flee to the mountains. If if Jesus says these things are going to happen, and you see this this army surrounding, now what what did he give you the possibility? I said Celestius Gallus comes in and he gets up to the temple standards above, and then what does he do? He leaves. He leaves. Who has the opportunity to flee? Everybody that saw it. The people that were in the temple. The people in Jerusalem have an opportunity to flee. If it's the destruction of the temple itself, if that's the abomination, they don't have any time to leave. They can't get out. They're in a battle between 66 to 70. Nobody goes. But in 66, when this event happens with Cestius Gallus, and then he leaves, yeah, you have time to flee. You have time to get out before things get really bad, before our famine happens. See how, that, see how that makes sense to sit within the context of just before the temple is destroyed. And he, he warns, though, when we're looking at uh, the things that he's warning about, um, let one who is the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in, the, in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. They actually think that um, the way they date that, that when that happens with Cestis Gallus, is about four to six weeks prior to winter. and it, And it is not on the Sabbath. If he would have entered the temple at the time, it would have been. It would have been. So, um, what, what's what's kind of the what's kind of the point here? Once you see these things going on, okay. Once you see these signs, get out of dodge, right? Leave and leave quickly because birth pains. The destruction is imminent. It's going to happen. And then he read reiter- It reiterates there. Um, False Christ, false prophets will rise and perform great signs and wonders. Why is that happening during that time? Because the Jewish people are under what? They're, they're under duress. Yeah, they're under great duress. They're under pressure, right? Like the, like Rome is, is moving in on them. It's another opportunity for these Messiah like figures to come up and, and, and rabble rouse and get people jazzed up to defend themselves. Well, does also show that authority that God knowing this is gonna happen? Oh, sure. Sure. Right, right. And what's interesting is you look at the way that Jesus deals with people. Like, he's constantly saying, I am, I am this, and then demonstrates it. I am this. I do these things. This is how my kingdom works, demonstrates it. And you're right, people are still blind to that. And so, like, it, I think this is what he's, what he's saying, is that, like, these are clear signs. And if you, were, if you agree who I am and you listen to my authority, you will see them and you will flee. And the truth is, is that church history says they did. They did flee.
1: This would have been rather devastating to the early church that's still relatively centered around Jerusalem had they not left.
0: Oh, man, yeah. If they just
1: followed human wisdom and go from Galilee to Jerusalem and hang out in Jerusalem and the security of those walls, if that early kingdom that Jesus is setting up and all those followers followed conventional human wisdom at this time, um, I mean, they would have been wiped out. You'd have these satellite colonies that Paul had set up in various places, but... The core block of Jesus' movement, where they execute
0: right there. You guys heard this phrase? Diaspora? It's, it, it means dispersion. Um, and and, and, and that basically, this is when this, this type of thing is happening, right? When there's persecution happening and they're dispersing from Jerusalem and going out. Um, you see guys like John and Jesus' mother Mary end up in Ephesus. Um, people are going to, to other places in Paris and stuff like that. Like they're leaving Jerusalem and starts to press everything out. Um, because Jesus said, this is coming and you need to go. I think Dan's right. I think you have two impacts here. Like you have one, I'm going to destroy the temple. You need to get out of Dodge. Things are going to get really bad. Um, but then you also have, uh, we, we can't stay here. We're not this. We need to tell the whole world. Like we can't be centered around this stuff. We've got to move. And so Jesus kind of forces that fact. Again, one of the reasons I think the temple has got to be destroyed because it orients, um, when previously it's oriented where people come to me, come to, to come to the temple. In the very example of Jesus is, "I'm coming to you, and I'm am co- coming for you," <laughs> which is cool. But like, I think that's kind of what you're seeing, kind of mixed up in this in this whole area. Okay, how are we doing? Seven, oh no, we're gonna have to stop there. <coughs> we're gonna have to stop there. One of the coming <laughs> man. Shoot, that's the phone. Um, well, I didn't mind to imply those other weren't fun, but we're getting into some stuff here. Okay, so. I'm gonna hope that next week we can finish this off. But like, here's we get into some tricky stuff um, coming up in our next section, the coming of the Son of Man. Here's what I would recommend on Matthew 24. Um, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. When I was reading that, I did the I did the hand. <laughs> that sounds like the end of the world to me. Okay. What I want you to do though is see if we can find those phrases elsewhere in the Bible. Okay. See if you can find them somewhere else. Hint check Acts 2, hint, maybe Joel, (laughs) okay, possibly Isaiah, (laughs) okay, and see see if we see those same phrases, and here's the deal, if they exist in those, is that the end of the world? Because if that's not the end of the world, does this have to be the end of the world, or is there something else going on? Okay, so that's, I want you to check that for next week. Let's see if we can get through that. Um, there's a lesson of the fig tree. He cursed a fig tree earlier. It's not a bad idea to go through and read that. I thought, I always thought that was outrageous. I'm like, Jesus, I feel like you're overreacting. It's a fig tree. Uh, but you know, symbolism, all this business. He's wiser than me and he's got a really good reason to be cursing the tree. And it makes a lot more sense after I kind of read through this stuff. He's not an over, overreacting at the poetry. All right, so that's what we're going to do next week. Here's, um, let me plot out where I think we're going to be able to get to in, um, in our remaining weeks. We're going to try to finish Matthew 24 next week. Um, it will lead us into, we need to talk about rapture stuff. We've got to try to talk about the, the, um, the doctrine of the rapture, where it came from, the biblical support of it, like what verses exist, um, and how it sits within the context of, say, Matthew 24. We will touch on some of that probably next week. Um, whatever we don't get, we're going to clean up the following week. Um, and that will take us through um, some of the other major passages that talk about kind of the end, end of the world. Um, the, last, the last week, we'll ha- we will have some more cleanup to do, I think, in Matthew. Um, and then I want to hit on a couple things on, if you want to try to tackle Revelation, I'm going to give you some hints on how to do that. Um, so that as we prepare to look at Revelation going forward, um, and I'm hoping to do that before the end of the year, it really depends on when my wife has a child. Um, and when I can kind of prepare for that, but um, probably towards the end of there. We'll try to do Revelation and then anything that is left that I did not get to um, I will handle one of two ways either I will try to like to write some stuff up So as a reference that you guys can kind of check out on some passages We didn't get to I may like continue to podcast a couple things just to kind of talk through some examples and stuff if you guys are on Facebook if you would turn on the notifications for that group if you're interested like if you want to keep up on that conversation, turn on the notifications so that you know that I've posted something. I will try to post stuff like throughout the week to like reiterate some of the stuff we've talked about and give you a heads up on, on where we're going. Okay. How we doing? There was a lot in this week. We doing all right? Everybody hanging out? Okay. All right, cool. Let's um let's let's hit the rest of Matthew twenty four next week. Thanks for coming.